Well, it's a good day to have a great day. Welcome to JR Off Air. Excited to have this guy on the show. Well, he's in a band called Plain White Tees. He was the uh, writer for Rhythm of Love, one of their songs. You also know their song, Delilah. Uh, very cool band, very cool guy. His name is Tim Lopez, and he is on JR Off Air. Well, Timmy, good to see you, buddy. How's everything going? Yeah, man. Things are good. Yeah, really very good. nice. So uh, I just saw you not too long ago playing White Tees. We're, do- we're doing a show in Florida. Uh, that was really cool to see you and catch up. Hey, I wanted to ask you, how did things start with playing White Tees? Tell me the, uh, the genesis of the group. Uh, well, it started before I was uh, a member. Okay. Um, there's only one founding member remaining, and that's Tom the, uh, the singer. And, um, yeah, the band started in basements in Chicago as like a high school cover band type of situation where, you know, at that time, I think, you know, some of the biggest artists would have been like Weezer, Nirvana. Um, and, uh, so that would put them back to like 90, 96, I think is when they started. Um, is that right? I think that's right. And, uh, yeah, cause he would have been in high school. Yeah. 96, I think is the year the band started. Um, and yeah, they would, you know, just rip on, on cover songs. And, um, I think Tom kind of attributes, um, a really horrible car accident that he was in to, um, taking the band more seriously and starting to, you know, um, incorporate like his own life experiences into writing songs and started to get feedback from friends and, and small local shows that they were really loving the stuff that he was really personal with. Right. Um, was that kind of a second chance thing for him? Like he was thinking, man, I'm lucky enough to survive. Was that what, I mean, yeah, it, it very well could have been that he actually, uh, he was chucked from a van on the freeway. So he happened to not be wearing a seatbelt and he's one of those rare cases where I think like someone cut him off and he yanked the wheel and it turned the car sideways and started doing this on the freeway and just threw him out of the van into, um, into like the center median, which had grass in it and he landed in the grass, but it just wrecked his back he had to wear like a full on like plastic, you know, stormtrooper looking back brace for a long time. Um, and so after that, yeah, I think he started uh, writing songs for that record stop, which, well, no, there was one before that actually come on over would have been the, the record he was writing. Um, and yeah, so that, that was kind of the beginning of things for them just built up a local fan base around Chicago playing any show that was offered. Right. And at that time, you know, I I still wasn't in the band, but they said like, you know, their ultimate goal was just to play uh, a venue in Chicago called the Metro. Okay. Which is like a good size club. It's, you know, maybe like 1500 or something cap. And that was kind of a local accomplishment. You know, at that time, like you'd go to see like the smashing pumpkins at, uh, at the Metro. Maybe like Uh, Stubbs in Austin. Would that be similar? Yeah. Okay. I think like that. Yep. 
And so they, they did that by the time I had met those guys. In fact, my old band um, that I was in with Reed, our mutual friend, yeah. um, that band uh, went out and flew from Southern California to Chicago to open for the Plain White Tees at the Metro. So, um, and then, yeah, I joined them um, when I was 23 years old. Um, so it's been 17 years. Jeez, man. So uh, how does that happen? You open up for someone, I guess you obviously you make those connections of, Hey, you play music. I play music. Thanks for letting me open up for you. Where does the merge come from? We're like, Hey, by the way, Tim, would you want to maybe join us? Like, how does that work? And does that happen a lot in, in music? Cause I feel like I mean, people are pretty protective over their groups, right? Yeah. I feel like bands that, that have that, um, you know, that, I don't know. I would assume you're right. I would assume you're right. I feel like bands that probably start grassroots and like, you know, earn their stripes the way that the T's did that they try to keep the unit together as best as possible. So you wouldn't be outsourcing guitar players or whatever, you know, but, um, I knew those guys from, uh, from opening that show. And then also, uh, we shared a manager. So there was times where we had all been together, um, playing other shows and, um, our drummer from my old band ended up producing one of their records. So we'd been around those guys a little bit. I didn't know them well when I joined and the band was a heavy touring band. So they, they would play 300 plus shows a year. And they were like, Hey, you want to be in the band? I hadn't toured that much. And I was like, yeah, let's jump in the, in the van with these random, not random, but you know, I, I didn't know them well. I was the new guy, but, um, but I loved it, man. The first uh, couple years of living in a van and trying to earn it and, uh, playing a lot of small clubs. It was fun. That's Super awesome, fun. man. I love that. I love that story. Now, uh, Delilah being one of the biggest songs, um, I should mention that you're from Santa Barbara. They're from Chicago. So that's mm-hmm. kind of cool that y'all came together. Um, you know, Delilah being probably, would we say the biggest song the Plain White Tees have put out for sure? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now is that, is that pre you or, or did you join the band and that came out while you were in the band? It came out when I was in the band, but it was, uh, the song existed before I joined. So I remember in, in the previous band that I was in, I was sent that demo like, Hey, here's a song that Tom's been working on. Cause our manager at times, he was good at this. He'd be like, Hey, look at what they're doing over here. Yeah. Look at how they're able to sell out these clubs. You guys need to be doing this. Tom's being very proactive. He's, you know, um, being prolific. He's writing a bunch of material. Why aren't you guys turning in songs? That type of stuff would happen with our old manager, um, in order to develop the band. Um, so I got sent, uh, Delilah and remember feeling like, okay, this is probably the best thing he's, he's ever turned in. Right. That, That was my feeling. I, there was no possible way to know that it would be what it became. Uh, because to me, it sounded, you know, off the heel. I mean, the T's were a pop punk band at the time, a warp tour style band. Right. Yeah. And, um, and of course, like, you know, ballads sometimes break through and, and you can have massive, massive success with ballads, but, um, the climate of music didn't seem like, oh yeah, that's a smash. You know, right. like you just 
wouldn't have called it. I don't dude, think hardly I, anyone would have called it. Dude, I could tell you that right now because I was working in San Diego on a top 40 station and uh, they said, hey, we got this new song, Plain White Tees. And honestly, I would come out of a Rihanna song or, you know, back in the day, like a Lupe Fiasco song. And then, hey, by the way, there's a new song, Plain White Tees, Delilah. And it was such a smash, such a hit. And for somehow found its way into you know, commercial success. And, yeah. and it was, and it's funny to hear that that, and that happens a lot, right? Some guys venture out, like, like I think of the band extreme, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. That, more that, than their, their ballad became one of the, it was their biggest hit. I and mean, a great, great song. Yeah, like, great honestly, song. it is yeah. a great song. Like, yeah. Um, I want to come back to playing white tees, but I want to go back to your childhood where, and we talked about this before when I just saw you, uh, you telling your dad that you really want to pursue music. And he was a, uh, you know, uh, a big fan of you playing sports. And I know you also wanted to pursue skateboarding. You were really into that, especially being from Santa Barbara. It's kind of a Mecca, uh, for yep. that. Um, obviously a conversation you told me that your dad didn't take well right away. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I want to preface with like, they have been nothing but supportive, uh, the whole time. Um, we didn't have, have a relationship where it's like, you know, Hey dad, I need you to financially support me so I can do this. We just went out on the road. So I, at least I did not become any sort of burden to him, yeah. you know? Um, and they were super supportive. They have been along the way, you know, they, we were nominated for Grammys for, for Delilah and they both were there, both my parents. Oh, cool. But at the time, um, yeah, I'm sure he, and intelligently so, saw the risk or the odds of success yeah. versus failure because that just is a truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like most people who think that they're going to make it in the music business do not. That, that's probably A- accurate, acting, right? think modeling, all that all stuff, those, entertainment, all yeah. those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, and also, I mean, I didn't, um, he had seen in our previous band, um, that, uh, you know, we were dedicated. We worked very hard. We had a major label record contract within, you know, a year or something. So wow. it didn't take long for him to feel like, okay, the boys know what they're doing right. kind of thing. But at the same time, uh, when I first brought it up to him, you know, I think our biggest, um, father son bonding throughout my entire youth from like age five till high school was baseball. Yeah. Um, and he just spent endless amounts of hours with my brother and I coaching each team and, you know, pushing us hard to be, uh, as good as we could be at that sport. And I think, uh, because we had <laughs> shared that our whole lives, uh, or my whole life till that point, he was, um, invested in that in a way that hurt when, when I let it go to yeah. say like, at, at first it was skateboarding, you know, I skateboarded every day from sixth grade until uh, I was at city college in Santa Barbara. And that one for sure, I'm, I bet he was just like, dude, yeah. don't get too caught up in this. For one, like most people's bodies can't withstand doing that for a long time. And then also it's certainly not the most lucrative pursuit unless you are probably like in the top, you know, 1% of skateboarders, you know, right. so. 
Well, it's cool, man. It's, it's cool to hear that, you know, I, and, and like you said, you've told me before, like he was definitely supportive. I think the, the better way to phrase that was caught off guard, maybe. Yeah. That and I mean, I, I think that we just like, it was like saying goodbye to an era between yeah. us, you know, like we still connect over baseball. We're mm-hmm. both huge Dodgers fans and we have a group text. That's like my dad, my uncle, my brother, my brother-in-law, everybody still, you know, connects through baseball, um, which is good. I mean, we love it, but, yeah. uh, yeah, that was like the end of a father son era, which has to kind of hurt, you know? Sure. So, well, I can tell you that from my experience of going into radio and it was a little bit different. Like I'm 16 years in now and my dad still goes, Hey, you know, you'd be great at sales. You ever thought about going into sales? I'm like, yeah, this, this is a career. I'm pretty much, it, you know, so yeah, it's just yeah. funny how that kind of old school thinking, but again, very supportive, just like you said, your dad was and all that. Was there, when did you realize, I know you told your dad that, you know, this is what I'm going to pursue. Was there a time that clicked in your head that said, Hey, I can make a living out of this. Yeah. The, the best thing about it for me and the, and the thing that made it, um, an easy decision was, um, my first band, I was, um, almost there in support of Reed. Okay. So my, my friend Reed, uh, was writing songs from the time that he was probably like 15, 16. We both went to high school together. There was a venue in Santa Barbara, um, that we used to go out to and I would watch him play and all the kids from high school would show up, loved Reed's band. And so I got to kind of watch him kind of, um, demonstrate how it can be done. And he was good. I mean, he's a, he's a poetic guy, good melody writer. So even at at 16, he was kind of showing signs like I can do this and people are going to be interested in what I have to say. Um, so, um, I joined his band thinking like, I believe in this guy. Um, he's a friend, but I believe in him. And, uh, I kind of acted as like, you know, a support role. We wrote a lot of our first record together, him probably writing like, you know, 60, 70% of it, but we lived together. So I was there like, you know, working on those songs. And like I said, we got signed to a major label off that album. It wasn't like a massive deal or anything, but because we were such a baby band, they gave us a contract that was, uh, at the, at that time, I don't even think they do this anymore, but it was called a development deal where they were like, Hey, we like what you're doing. We want you to quit your job and do solely this. Here's the amount of money we're going to give your band per month and we want you to play X amount of shows per month. And we want you to write as much as you can, because we are going to, you know, try to grow right. your efforts. Right. And so, um, I think that was kind of the moment where I was like, Oh, like it makes you realize like, okay, um, this guy over here is no different than what I'm doing over at, you know, at Reed and I's apartment it's just like there, you have to stay in the creative mindset. And if great ideas come good, if bad ideas come good, just keep working kind of thing. Um, but I felt like we made such big strides in our first little effort that I was like, okay, like this seems doable. Um, it wasn't until being in the tease that, uh, I learned, uh, that, I mean, there was definitely times where I lost faith that, that it was going to work out the way I had hoped one being that, um, 
you know, the musical style of the tease at that time was like, like, I might've been wrong here, but I didn't think that it had the potential to be massively successful. I just didn't like, I right. thought that pop punk bands lived in a pop punk world and didn't leave it, you know, right. um, and didn't, you know, um, transfer over into like pop radio or hot. AC what would have been, like, been like a really big pop punk band at that time that we would know. I mean, that's the thing. So like at that time, you certainly had green day okay. doing it. You had Blink-182 doing it. Um, and then our peers at the time in Plain White Tees, right when we were becoming successful, Fallout Boy was crushing. And I mean, like, they would, we opened for them on a couple of club tours. And, like, they were at such an early stage that we would be opening for them in, like, a 600-seat room. Wow. So, like, a small, sweaty club they're just going nuts, you know, on stage crowd is, you know, insane. Mm -hmm. And there's the T's doing a much more like kind of cleaned up pop punk, right? You know, Fall Out Boy was really ruckus back in the day, like, you know, chucking their guitars over their heads and all that stuff. Um, and, um, so yeah, I mean, there was examples of it working. I just didn't the, you know, there, like I said, we were on tour for like 300 days of the year living on like 10 bucks a day. That's what we would give ourselves. It's like, here's 10 bucks. Go get yourself some Taco Bell three times right. a day or, or twice <laughs> a day. And, um, and it was hard to believe that it was, you know, we, we'd see like small little incremental increases in the fan base. And then it wasn't until, um, Delilah was released on an indie record. Uh, MySpace was a thing. Okay. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. Delilah got really big on MySpace. We put out the indie record with Delilah on it. And that indie record sold, uh, like, I think it was like almost a hundred thousand copies or something. Wow. Um, and at that time on a label like that, that was a really big deal. And so that gave us uh, the attention of a few major labels. And then once we were on a major, they went straight for the radio campaign with hate and then Delilah and our time now on that first record. And that's what blew up the band. So I, I had a little bit of flux there where I was like a little bit dejected and didn't know, like, is this going to be my thing? Um, and then thankfully with, this is what's great about witnessing people who are successful. Um, especially people that, you know, is that like when Tom was, I mean, dude, Delilah was number one in like 16 countries or something. Wow. So with a song like that from my friend, Tom, it gave me the encouragement of like, well, I see how he operates. Yeah. I can also write music. I'm going to start writing for the band too. And so from that point forward, I've been trying to, um, you know, get a few cuts on every single album. Yeah. I have had a hit, one hit with the band and then some minor successes with some other songs. Um, and yeah, that all comes from just kind of witnessing people, you know, do it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that hit for a second. I mean, people know it rhythm of love. I mean, uh, don't downplay that at all because you've heard that. And I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard that in TV shows, movies, and all that stuff. How does that work? Do they have to come to you for permission to use it? And then does that help it blow up even more? It does, yeah. And it's almost always a yes. Yeah. Like someone's basically telling you, um, 
like I wouldn't even care if the song was super misrepresented. Like, you know, here's a commercial with, uh, you know, for hemorrhoids, we're going to use rhythm of love. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you 20 grand. I'll be like, yes. That's so, how it works by the way. Hemorrhoids. <laughs> <and> hemorrhoids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I never felt like, uh, you could do harm having your song heard by more people, you know? Um, but thankfully, I mean, the stuff that it was used in like an Ashton Kutcher movie, uh, which paid great. And it was in a, um, Estee Lauder makeup like campaign where they ran it for like a couple of years. That was great. So yeah, I mean, that's type of stuff. The song did really well at uh, hot AC radio, and that was more so in the, in the States and Canada, never like we went over to the UK and worked that song a little bit and it did all right, but not, not quite uh, what I would have hoped, but all that stuff really relies on, um, you have a separate record company over there and they have to believe it just as much as the U S company, you know, record company. So it gets complicated, but anyway, yeah, that, that song was great for me and, uh, really helped me with my own self-confidence, um, as a writer and yeah. Chain. You know, it's, it's interesting because you said Delilah was so not a fit for how you first interpreted the band playing YTs of, right. you know, being a pop rock type band. When you heard the success of Delilah, were you thinking in your head, okay, maybe this is the formula where I can go down? Because Rhythm of Love is more like Delilah than a punk rock song so Absolutely. or a pop rock song or whatever you want to call it. Um, did you feel like, okay, that's kind of our lane then? Is that kind of where you were thinking? It's interesting. I mean, we've, we've talked about what our lane is and had such a hard time actually sorting that out because Tom, you know, Tom has always had an acoustic song on most records. There's always there, even back to the early ones, pop punk, you know, for 10 of the 12 songs and then a couple little acoustic ideas that are maybe more personal to him or something. Um, and they, they always do seem to get, uh, more popular than the other ones. So that probably is our lane, but I wasn't really thinking, uh, about that when I, when I wrote the song, I, um, I write on an acoustic guitar almost always. So, um, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you can hear what you're playing and, and feel like, okay, this belongs on an electric guitar ultimately. But, um, sometimes when you're just kind of playing around and going through chords and I like to slide a capo up and down on my guitar and change positions and just wait for my ears to kind of feel like something sounds original or sounds pretty or whatever. Um, and that was just a song that came out. So it wasn't really, uh, intentional, but it certainly did after, you know, it went Delilah and then one, two, three, four was our next big hit, which is like a top five hot AC song. And I think worked a little bit at top 42 and then rhythm is also a top five song at hot AC all on acoustics. So it probably is our lane. And yeah. we, um, I know Tom right now is riding for the next, uh, plain YT's release. And it's, I think he's leaning into that a little bit more than he has in the past. Um, so, um, but it all comes down to the song, man, people, you can write a garbage song that sounds like, you know, a C plus version of Delilah and it's not going anywhere, you know? Right. So, no, it's a great song. And, you know, it's so, it's so funny to now have a friendship with you after hearing those songs and hearing them for the first time as a guy who's working in radio and being like, all right, let's see if this is going to work. Cause 
right no we got to see how it's you know how the um how the uh, audience interprets it or takes it but it says it's really really cool to see um to see that blow up and that song changed your life i mean would you agree with that absolutely yeah, yeah. in a really crazy way i mean uh in all the traditional ways of like you know making a fast buck and you know being able to afford a house um which i couldn't before um and then uh like i said b- before like confidence wise huge um and then also um the whole reality show thing with where i met jenna um jenna being your wife for people who don't know jenna being your wife jenna's my wife yep uh who i met on a reality show that opportunity was given based on the success as a writer right? right like they're not you know if i had nothing going besides just like what you see right here, you know, like, <laughs> no, but like, you're a what, name and there are people that you can market you yes. in that way. I got it. Yeah. Like you can't just knock on the door at NBC and be like, I'm a good guy. Yeah. I think that I should be your bachelor, you know, yeah. type of thing. So the song was working right at that time. Perfect opportunity for, uh, the A&R guy at our label, um, which was, uh, owned by Disney, which is in, um, you know, it's connected to NBC. And so they, um, it was just an easy, Hey man, like this, this guy over here, he's got a hit song right now. Yeah. I think he'd be a good fit for your show. And then it was like, you know, five meetings and you're hired kind of thing or hired. What was the name of that show? It was called ready for love. You can stream it on Amazon if you're interested, but, and I, I, you know what? I recommend it. I recommend it. If, if you're into that, uh, if you're into like the bachelor bachelorette type stuff, then go check it out. It's, it's well, got your, all wife, this- your wife is awesome. Uh, she's so great. Uh, agreed. Uh, yeah. She is so cool. Um, and obviously she kind of was thrust into dating a musician and what's that like? I mean, how do you, you know, how, how do you, I don't know. I don't know if boundaries is the word, but how do you explain what you do and what, your, how your time's going to be taken up when you're trying to have a relationship and all that, that balance, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that those conversations are had extremely early. The, the good thing is, is we, um, when we met on that show, I was like, you know, head over heels for her. Um, we both lived in Austin, Texas, which was extremely convenient because if it was, you know, dating long distance and having to do all the touring that I was doing, that would be challenging. But, uh, but we were both in Austin and we kind of left the show in the past and just said, all right, let's date normally now. And, um, so that was a long process too. Um, and so she got, um, yeah, a good introduction to what life is like with me traveling quite a lot. And, um, you know, she moved in with me before we got married. Um, and, um, so she would just be home at my place while I was traveling a lot. And thankfully, you know, we're, we're doing this at a time where you can FaceTime someone constantly and it's, you know, it makes life a lot easier for traveling musicians. Um, and, um, and as time has gone on, we've toured less and less and tried to be a little bit smarter with our time. Right. <laughs> you know, sometimes you can be out there grinding and you're like, is this really driving our, you know, our project forward or would we be better 
you know, better usage of our time creating or whatever. So yeah, that's awesome, man. I love hearing that. And you, you talked about your tourings less now. How do you guys pick your spots when it comes to, I mean, you just, you just did a, um, uh, a show uh, whenever, whenever this comes out, but a, a couple of weekends, let's just call it a couple of weekends ago in Western mm-hmm. Chapel, Florida. I mean, how does that come about? How do you say yes to a gig? How do you say no to a gig where the band is now? Yeah. Well, um, taking COVID out of it, let's just say COVID's not happening. Just the, you know, yeah, that's, that's yeah. obviously a factor. I got that now, but yeah. Um, I mean, I think that we've been now recognized as someone that's like a pretty good booking for a family friendly event, Mm -hmm. you know, like if, if, if it's a city that wants to put on a show and they're like, Hey, we're going to have tons of, you know, kids running around and you know, their, their parents want to get out and, you know, see a show or whatever. That's a big booking for us lately. Yeah. Um, which, you know, those gigs pay well. And, um, right now I've got my two kids. Tom has a son. Our bass player has two children and our drummer is uh, single right now. Well, he's not single; he's dating, but he doesn't have kids. And, uh, so as far as choosing gigs, it's kind of like, all right, what can we do, uh, that allows us the proper amount of time with our children and pays the bills. So a lot of times it is like that Wesley chapel show where it's like, you know, money's good. There's going to be a crowd and we're, you know, they're really fun. Honestly, yeah. like people are wound up right now, especially, I mean, you said leave COVID out of it, but I think people are really wound up right now to see shows. So, yeah, um, so yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it. And, um, we do, uh, we do still have plans for future touring, um, and pairing up with, with some bands and stuff and getting out there and doing a bus tour or what and whatnot. But like the best stuff is like, you know, you saw me in Florida. It's like, I fly with my golf clubs. I land, I go play golf. We play a show. I fly home, right. you know, and I can pay the bills. So I love that. I love that. Yeah. Talking about pairing up with other bands and doing tours and all that. When you're, when you're an opener, can you think back to maybe one of the most impressive bands you've ever got to open for man, sitting side stage going, man, I hope I get to that level or man, they know how to do it. Do you want to say hi? No, come on. Get creep in here. Hey, <laughs> hi. Good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. Yeah. Um, Virtually. So, okay, here's a good one. I love uh, Jenna we, from the reality show, everybody. Let's give it up. Yeah. <laughs> we were, um, oh, let me, let me put my phone on. Yeah. Getting alerts here. So unprofessional. Um, so, yeah. No kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, listen to this one. We were out on tour, uh, opening or main support for snow patrol. Wow. And snow patrol was at the exact same time the main support for U2. So uh, U2 only had, you know, they're playing uh, stadiums. Yeah. We were in Boston and they were playing uh, Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. And Snow Patrol was like, you guys got to come check out how crazy this show is. So they put us on the list and we went there early to see Snow Patrol play and then got great seats for U2. And I mean, that's like, it's basically as big as it gets. Like mm-hmm. the U2 production is kind of famous for being as grandiose as it can possibly yeah. be. 
And then, you know, watching Snow Patrol, it's funny, like uh, giant stage, Snow Patrol's out there. The sun is not down yet at Gillette Stadium. So they kind of look like a baby band trying yeah. to play for like this group of maybe like at that time, people are still funneling into the stadium. And it was not really what I thought. Like they probably were playing for like four or 5,000 people, but the place seats 65,000 right. or 70,000. So there's just people coming in and, you know, it sounds pretty good, but, yeah. and then two goes on and it's just like, you know, nights fall in and the lights are insane. And that was the tour where they were in that, like, almost like alien spaceship looking thing. Okay. Yeah. I've seen pictures. Uh, yeah. Nuts, dude. Nuts. But, uh, I mean, that was a great tour. We did, uh, panic at the disco and fallout boy. Those were both in arenas. Uh, so we've done Madison square garden with those bands. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, we've trying to think of like, what else? I mean, Rob Thomas was a great tour for us. Yeah, I think really we talked about that before. I mean, that guy was, that was the, what was that experience like with Rob? Cause I mean, with matchbox 20 and then him coming off, you were with a solo, right? Not, not yep, matchbox, yep, solo, not matchbox. Is that a guy you look at and you go, this dude just has it figured out. I mean, kinda. Yeah. I I've stayed, uh, in contact with him since doing that tour. We got along great on that tour. Um, and, um, and you gotta be learning from these guys, right? I mean, are they talking to you? Is this a, a chance yeah, for you I've, to sit down I've and actually, stuff like that? Yeah. I wrote a song with Rob, uh, that might end up on his next record. We'll see if it, if it does, but, um, he, um, yeah, I mean, he's had massive success, uh, lots of hits, um, but talking to him recently, um, I was kind of shocked to hear him say, he's like, I'm doing a ton of writing and I'm still going to put out stuff. But, um, like, I think he realized that the sound of his voice, even it like reminds people so much of an era that has passed Mm. That he's kind of like, I really want to focus on writing and seeing if I can write for other people. You know, it's, it's not as focused on like, can I get a hit? Can I get another hit? And what's great about his catalog that he owns is that, you know, you cannot go anywhere without hearing rock. Like right. you, if you start to, I mean, it wasn't until I was on tour with him that I realized how much you're getting bombarded by Rob Thomas songs throughout your life. You know, right. it's like grocery stores, restaurants, anywhere like dentist office. I mean, you're going to get, you know, either matchbox or his solo stuff. Yeah. So I don't think that he's in need of, a, <laughs> yeah. of a hit, but success is a drug. I mean, it's really hard to wean yourself off of success, you know, right. I think like once you taste it and then you think, okay, I've done this multiple, multiple times, especially in his case, like it's gotta be aggravating if you don't get it, you know, okay. and he's put out a couple of records recently that certainly, you know, have not reached where he was in the past, but they're great albums. I mean, he's right. got really good songs on those records. So you just have to, we, we've talked about this in the tease and I think this is an interesting point is like, if you go the spans of a decade and you look at what happens in music, like, you know, from the fifties, which is a definable musical era yep. into the sixties, into the seventies, 
or say the eighties, which is super definable with it's like electronics and that are period, you know, specific and Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson was the biggest possible thing that you could get out of the eighties or say Holland Oates. Right. And then you go into the nineties and it's all about Nirvana. So those two things are not alike at all, but that was the massive trend shift. So for us in the tease, it's like, we've been in a band together for over 20 years, multiple decades going into like our third decade. And it's like, okay, so are we a band that spans multiple decades of musical styles and, right. and the shift that is happening? I mean, we are not Billie Eilish, you know? So yeah. it's an interesting thing to consider as a musician. Like, do you have like an expiration date mm -hmm. or do you just keep on plugging? And, you know, certainly a great song can change the course of your band again. So yeah. I was listening to a podcast that Dave Grohl was on and he was talking about how he went from Nirvana and didn't really say much because you had Kurt Cobain and you weren't going to bring your ideas to Kurt. I mean, he just had it figured out. He was their drummer. Right. And then he yeah. comes into Foo Fighters and that's where he kind of gets to express himself more. And it's kind of a lead man. And then he talked about how now he takes his kids to like a Billie Eilish show when Billie first comes out. And he obviously is not Billie Eilish, you know, that's not his band. But he said there was kind of a revolution where you could see kind of what you just described of you kind of have to catch that next phase of where music is at. I mean, yeah. talk about this in fashion too, like fashion starts to repeat itself. There's like a rev revolution when it comes to that. But you also, I would argue that Foo Fighters they've kind of remained the same and they're still the damn Foo Fighters, right? Yeah. They have, they, there are exceptions that stand, you know, stand the test. But I will say, even on, say, like modern rock radio, which Foo Fighters is a straight up rock band, right. you know, like they're not a top 40 band, even though they have crossed over at times for sure. But I would guess and I could be wrong, so you can correct me if I am wrong, but I would guess that Foo Fighters have had less success even at modern rock lately than they did at the beginning of their career, right? Like, right. like he's, uh, they put out a couple albums recently that might've gotten almost no radio play. Yeah. So even a band that's pretty untouchable, like the Foo Fighters who can sell out, you know, massive venues and they have a dedicated fan base and they're set in that way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, even them, they're still going to deal with the shift in what music is, you know? Yeah. So, well, that's the crazy part too, is like, you know, you used to be all about radio and that's the business I'm in. And now it's, and, and I, I think you and I've had this conversation before is like, sometimes you hear songs on the radio, you go, man, I can't believe that song's a hit. We'll leave names out of it, but you know, I can't believe that song's yeah. a hit. But when you get to a Foo Fighters or even where you guys are at right now, you guys have defined yourself and you brought up Rob Thomas you kind of can do things for the art or what sparked something in you or trying something because you do have that, that catalog or those hits to go back to where you have that dedicated fan base. Even if you're not on the radio, you know, the nostalgia of your band is going to still sell out venues. Right. So sure. when you hear those departures, do you feel like those are kind of them not having to play the game? Yeah, probably so. And then ultimately, um, cause you don't really need radio. You would you would only hope to have success on something that you 
really love anyway, you know, like that you have poured yourself into. So you should be out there busy pouring yourself into your art. Um, I think that there's times where it gets hard to not chase a trend and, you know, change your stylings or whatever, um, which we have done at times, but we did it enjoying what we were doing. So I don't know, man, it's re it's a really hard business. Um, and sometimes stuff comes out of left field and is massively successful, um, purely because it's different and good, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows? <laughs> no, who knows? absolutely. Who knows? I mean, there's not, I don't think I, there's a straight I, answer to this. I mean, I don't think there's like a formula like, yeah, you do this, you do this and you, it happens. Yeah. And the, like, some of like my favorite songwriters and, and I have a book called songwriting by songwriters. It's like a, how did these songs come to be mm -hmm. as told by the writers? And, um, and there's so many massive writers who believe that songs are delivered to you. Like mm -hmm. that you basically like kind of open yourself up to something that, is just showing up to you. Cause I, I mean, it, it kind of, and this is going to be a, a little bit of a left turn here, but like trying to understand the subconscious in human beings has most people, I think, if not all completely stumped, like mm. there's one thing, it's one thing to, to talk about like nature and nurture when it comes to like shaping a human being, but you're not controlling their subconscious. Like the subconscious sometimes, like you'll even catch yourself, like, why the hell did I just think about that? You right. know, your brain works in a really crazy way. And songs first have to start as like a singular idea, but then like the ideas can snowball so quickly that you sometimes can't even keep up with it while you're writing. You're like, and then what if it did this? And then like, and this, and yeah. this, and this, like your brain is just kind of handling it. Yeah. And I've heard like Tom Petty is one of my favorite songwriters and he said that before, like, Oh no, I don't know. Those songs just kind of came. Like I just was like the vessel that mm -hmm. like they came through. And, uh, so trying to, uh, nail down why a certain song is good or why, how it came to you, I think is like not really in your best interest. Sometimes right. it's just maybe just kind of show up to work and maybe you'll get one. And that's kind of how I do feel about Rhythm of Love. I didn't have a background in writing songs that feel beachy or anything, but mm -hmm. like that song just arrived within one day. It was like, I didn't have to work hard at it. It just showed up and there it was, you know? So I certainly think that there's something to it. Well, I think you said something too, is the, the way a, a song can change shapes so much as you continue to write it, or it takes you in a different direction or whatever. I mean, an example of this recently, Dan and Shay's, their song Tequila, they were going to mm -hmm. write that as a party song, Tequila, party, all that stuff. And then they changed it into a ballad, ballad to be more of a reflective song and it became one of their biggest hits they ever had. So totally know what you're right. saying when it comes to that. I mean, when you just, I mean, that's the creative process with anything, right? I mean, you can start off yeah. with soul and you can get there a couple of different ways for sure for sure for sure um wanted to ask you about this do you enjoy the production standpoint of of creating songs you know songwriting all that but then 
coming back to like a production standpoint, a guy that stands out for me is Ryan Tedder from One Republic. The guy, the way the guy's brain works when it comes to a beat drum or this or that and how he can put that together, that puzzle together. Do you enjoy that too? Or is that something that gets sparks you? I love that part. Yeah. Uh, because oftentimes, I mean, that's a, one of the really fascinating parts about songs too, is that you can destroy a song in production. Like you might have a song that, that feels great on guitar and usually a song that feels great on one instrument is bound to be, you know, I, I think that it has, you know, it's chance or whatever. Right. But, uh, but you can wreck songs by choosing the wrong production style. Even one wrong sound can put off, you know, the ear of, of the listener or whatever. Um, and I really, I, I do really like demoing songs and getting them to a point where I'm like, so this is how I wrote it, but this is how I hear it in my mm -hmm. head. And oftentimes it is like a complete picture. So like the production, I'll just keep using rhythm of love, which is an easy reference, but, um, like I heard all of the production in my head as I was writing it. So when I went to demo it with my friend, uh, in Los Angeles, I was like, Hey man, I have this idea. It goes like this, but I hear the drums doing this. And, you know, I hear the guitars coming in here because there's a lyrical cue for it. And I hear this part being harmonized this way. And so we just built it in one you know, it was like one and a half days in the studio recording it. And then I don't think we changed hardly anything when we recorded it with the T's. It was like, no, Tim's versions all sorted out. Right. So, um, yeah, I love that part. And, um, and yeah, like it kind of allows you, you know, there's one thing to be like poetic as a writer lyrically or, or to come up with a great melody, but, uh, there's a lot of artistry in the, in the painting of the canvas around the song, you know? So that's really, really cool, cool to watch, man. I mean, I, I'm a nerd when it comes to that. I love watching YouTube videos of people putting songs together like that. And yeah, Tedder's a good one. He's a good example. He's got a lot of stuff on like YouTube where you can watch him. Uh, Charlie Puth, I think does that too. Yeah. That you, you like where he'll be like, Hey, I started with this little piano yeah. and then check out how I manipulated it or whatever. So Yeah. When you watch something like that, how do you view that? Like, I, I, oh, that's how I would have done it too. Or I mean, how do you, when you watch stuff like that, or is, or is that just like, that's, that's a different level or is that, oh, I, I, I totally relate to this. I mean, some stuff's on a different level. Some of those guys are, I mean, for a while there, Ryan Tedder was probably, uh, without a lot of people knowing it, the most successful songwriter, uh, besides maybe like Max Martin, who's a producer you know, um, like, you know, he was writing for Beyonce, Leona Lewis, Adele mm. himself with one Republic and probably Taylor however, Swift. yeah, Taylor Swift. Right. So not only is your band successful, but you're writing for six or seven of the other biggest artists in the world. And you, not only are you writing for them, but some of those are their hits. So yeah. he's, he was crushing. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely watch him go like, okay, there's things to learn, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Be so arrogant as to not try to learn from, from someone like that. But, um, yeah. 
Well, cool, man. Well, I know you got your family and I appreciate you so much taking the time to talk to me and help me get this podcast off the ground. It's been great. It was so cool seeing you in Florida and just yeah, same, man. about life and, and stuff like this. But uh, say hi to the fam for me. Um, I will see you when I come to Austin. We'll have a cigar or something. Sounds great. All, All right, right brother. Be well. Yeah. Talk to you later. Yep. Yeah, you see too. You, see ya. Yeah.